Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be hearing about Nehemiah and taking a trip down that old river called Denial. And now, here's Nate Larkin. All right, I told you uh, that we were going to talk about denial. Denial this week. That river that we have to cross to reach the promised land. Before we can begin to fight the giants, before we can begin to walk through and take possession of what God's given us, before we can tackle everything, we've got to cross this big scary thing called denial. I told you last week that, uh, you know, I, uh, Allie and I came to this church 16 years ago and I encountered the gospel in a fresh and new way that I'd never heard it before at the same time that God thrust me into this world of 12-step recovery and how recovery opened up the Bible to me and opened doors and windows on the gospel that I hadn't seen. And at the same time, that steady, insistent preaching of the gospel made me receptive to all the grace uh, required for recovery and made my recovery easier. It's amazing to me how the Bible changed. Uh, I'd never seen recovery in the Bible until I got into recovery, and suddenly the reco- it's everywhere. Uh, for example, uh, I remember, uh, you know, bumping into the book of Nehemiah. Now, I knew the book of Nehemiah, I knew the story of Nehemiah. I'm pretty sure I'd preached on Nehemiah before. I'd always been told that Nehemiah is about leadership. And I suppose it is. But I'll tell you what, when I read the book this time, the whole book was about recovery. It was amazing. So I want to, as kind of a, a prelude to talking about uh, denial, I want to give you a, a synopsis of the, uh, of the book of Nehemiah, at least take you to the opening. And to get there, I'm going to back up uh, and give you some background to Nehemiah. I had a college professor who told me he could make, he always told us he could make the Roman Empire rise and fall in 25 minutes. Uh, I can't do that, but I'm going to give you f- about uh, 500 years of uh, Old Testament history, hopefully here in about 10 minutes. This is background to the book of Nehemiah, so we can understand what's going on. We'll start in about the year 1000. It's an easy, 1000 BC, it's an easy number to remember, and that's pretty much when the kingdom, ancient kingdom of Israel starts. David comes as king, establishes Israel, capital is in Jerusalem, about 1000 BC. Got it? David is succeeded by his son Solomon who builds the temple. The temple is completed in 960 BC. We're working backwards now because we're in negative numbers, so the smaller the number, we're actually getting closer. So it's 960 BC, and Solomon builds this spectacular temple. And this is the high point of Israel's international influence. They rule all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Um, They have international respect and they've got a spectacular showpiece of a city. It's a fantastic place, very wealthy. Okay, Solomon dies and everything goes to hell, basically. They can't even stay together after the death of Solomon and no sooner is he's in the grave than the, com- than the country splits in half. The 10 northern tribes uh, you know, form their own separate kingdom, the kingdom of Israel and The two southern, including uh, those that live in Jerusalem, have the kingdom of Judah. So we've got, 
And, and for the first 60 years, they just fight with each other. And then they, they settle into kind of this semi-civil coexistence. Now, Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom, he sets up, he doesn't want his people going to Jerusalem to worship. That's in the other kingdom. So he sets up two worship centers, one in the far north of the country in Dan, and one in the south in Bethel. Bethel's just 12 miles from Jerusalem. And in each place, he sets up a golden calf. Well, prophets are active during this period, and they, they um, are rebuking the northern kingdom for its idolatry. And they're rebuking the southern kingdom for their idolatry, which is an idolatry of a different kind. Because even though they're making their daily sacrifices at the temple and they're going through all this thing, they are building a stratified and materialistic society that exploits and ignores the poor. And they're called out on that time and time again by the prophets. Now, over the course of the, the, the succeeding about 200 years, there is a, a, a big geopolitical shift. For a long time, Israel has, or, or Egypt has been the superpower in that part of the world. But now Egypt is starting to fade, and there's a new player that's come on the scene, the Assyrians. They're in modern-day Turkey and northern Iraq, and they're a very a fierce people uh, and, and highly inventive people. Uh, they, they, they gave us, uh, we can thank the Assyrians for, uh, among other things, libraries, uh, flush toilets, um, laxatives, and guitars. They came up with all of those. <laughs> all right. Well, in the year 722, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom. Now, the Assyrians, they're brutal people. And when, they, when you're conquered by the Assyrians, you are conquered. They're just going to obliterate you. So um, they wipe out the whole northern kingdom. They take a ton of people back to Assyria with them, just relocate them. They take 27,000 people from Samaria alone. They knock down the cities, everybody scatters, and those 10 tribes disappear from history. Those are the lost tribes of Israel. Well, Judah is still there. Jerusalem is still there. And uh, this geopolitical process, all this change, continues. And before you know it, there's a new superpower, a new uh, power on the, on the scene. Now it's the Babylonians. Uh, the Babylonians are, uh, they're from southern Iraq. Their capital is Babylon, which is just a few miles from modern-day uh, Baghdad. Uh, the, the Assyrians, their capital had been in Nineveh, which is modern-day Mosul. Okay? So um, the Babylonians come along, and they defeat the Assyrians. Now the Babylonians are king of the world, right? And then the Babylonians start to think, you know, we ought, to, we, ought to take, we ought to take Egypt out, too. So Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, decides he's going to go conquer Egypt, which is kind of scary because the trip is going to take them through Judah. And Judah is allied with Egypt. Well, Nebuchadnezzar brings his army down, blows through Judah, goes down, and conquers Egypt. And on his way back, he picked up a bunch of hostages in, Ju in Judah. He took a bunch of nobles, 
And he said, you're going to come back to us, you know, just to make sure you're now a vassal state, and just to make sure that you don't misbehave, I'm going to take a bunch of people hostage. And so he takes a bunch of nobles with him back to Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. Now, the Babylonians, they also have a very high view of themselves and their culture. They really believe theirs is the best culture ever, and no other culture counts. And the way that they, uh, when, the, when they conquer, uh, they want to humiliate and obliterate every other culture. They're going to make everybody a Babylonian. And as we know, they tried to do that with Daniel and his friends with not very much success. Well, a few years passed, 12, 15 years, something like that. And Egypt gets Israel and uh, Judah involved in a proxy war. The Egyptians talk Judah into revolting against the Babylonians. Now Jeremiah's alive at this time, Ezekiel's alive at this time. Jeremiah's talking to the king going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Don't trust the Egyptians. The Egyptians don't care about you. They won't protect you. Trust God. God will protect you, but the king won't listen. So, so Judah revolts, and uh, the Babylonians, they decide they need to make an example of this little of this little country so that nobody else thinks of revolting. So they invade and it takes them no time at all to conquer Jerusalem. And they don't just conquer Jerusalem. They come in and they, dis they level the place. They knock down that be big beautiful temple, they destroy it, take it to the ground. They tear the wall, the whole wall down. They burn everything they can find. And then they carry everybody away back to Babylon. So now begins the Babylonian captivity, a hopeless time. But this whole international geopolitical process continues. That's history. Empires rise, empires fall. 49 years after the fall of Jerusalem, it's over for the Babylonians because there's a new player on the scene, the Persians. They're from Iran. Their capital is in Susa, about 450 miles south of modern-day Tehran. Their leader is Cyrus the Great, who's a very enlightened, uh, very ethical guy. Cyrus the Great, by the way, is mentioned 22 times in the Bible. He, uh, he believes in allowing people to keep their own language and their own customs and their own culture and even their own leaders. Once he conquers somebody, he allows them to keep their own leaders as long as they'll be loyal. He tells his governors to treat their people as though they're their children. Uh, he does something unheard of in the ancient world. He, he abolishes the death penalty for first-time offenders. So he captures, he captures Babylon, he's, and then he does this amazing thing. He tells the Jews they can all go home. So a whole bunch of Jews, they pack up and they go back to Jerusalem. Uh, he appoints Zerubbabel, who's the grandson of Jeho Jehoiakim, the last king that they'd captured, as governor. And under Zerubbabel, 42,000 uh, people come back, and they set to work. They decide to rebuild the temple, and they do it. It takes them 20 years, but they rebuild the temple. And when they're done, it's a tool shed compared to Solomon's temple. Not much of a temple, but it's a temple. So some more time passes. It's about another 60, 70 years. And uh, there are still some Jews in Persia. There are quite a few in, in the capital, Susa, including Esther, right? This is the time when Esther is alive. 
So she's got influence. Um, that's why, by the way, in the book of Esther, when uh, the king is fooled by Haman, uh, convinced by Haman to order the death of all the Jews, that order is sent out to all the provinces in all their languages, because that's how the Persians did things, right? Well, um, there's a succession of kings. There's Darius, and then there's Xerxes, and then there's Artaxerxes, and, and we're pretty sure it's, it's, it's Artaxerxes who has this spiritual awakening. And suddenly, he does this strange thing. He finds um, a Jewish priest who's living in Susa. The guy's name is Ezra. And he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and restore the worship of the Most High God in the temple. <laughs> Ezra gets some people, and he goes to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he finds that the city is pretty much in a mess. The Sabbath is now market day. Uh, there's no walls to the city. The, the surrounding peoples, uh, these pagan peoples, just come in and out with impunity. They're used to just plundering the city. They don't care. The people, the Jewish people, a great many of them have just kind of married into pagan families. And so Ezra begins a period of reform. And he takes this legalistic route that most all of us have tried. You know, our life's a mess. We decide it's time to get serious about religion. And uh, it's a, it, he goes on a purity campaign, a real holiness campaign. He's going to restore worship as it should be in the temple. He says, if you're married to somebody who isn't a Jew, I don't care how many kids you got. I don't care if you got grandkids, how long. I don't care. Divorce. We're going we're to be pure. And as often happens during these periods of fervor and this devotion of doing it right, there is a revival. It just doesn't last that long. About a dozen years later, we're now at about the year 444. It's an easy one to remember. This is about when Nehemiah starts, around 444. There's another guy, a Jewish guy, he's living in Susa. He's got a very comfortable, very secure, very well-paid position. He's a trusted guy. He's the cupbearer to the king. He's not a priest or anything. He's a layman, but he's a devout Jew. And he really turns out to be very kind of a messianic figure because Nehemiah, does, he's there in privilege. There's no reason why he should care about these people in trouble, but he cares. He can't stop thinking about them. And, and any time he hears that anybody has come back from Jerusalem, he goes to them and tries to get news. And so this is how the book of Nehemiah opens. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel at Susa, he's living at the palace, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived in exile and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in, and are back in the province are in great trouble and distress. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates have been burned with fire. The wall of Jerusalem has been broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Well, that just tears Ezra up, and he goes to prayer, and he goes to repentance on behalf of his people. And, uh, Nehemiah, yeah. And, uh, and then hears from God and goes to the king and asks permission to go to Jerusalem. And, you know, the king only has one question, basically. How, how long will it take you? When are you going to be back? He gives permission, and Nehemiah goes, and 
And, uh, and sure enough, when he gets there, he just, it's pathetic. The walls have been down now for, people have been living there for 92 years. And the walls are still down. And there is a temple, but it's not much of a temple. <laughs> and uh, it's not a safe place. It's not a safe place at all. And so he makes, uh, and, and enemies are everybody, and everybody's watching. So at night, when he's not seen, he makes a circuit of the city and takes a full inventory of what's, what the problems are. And then he has a vision for recovery, right? He gets the people together and says, I can't do this. You're going to have to do it, and, and you can only do it together. But I, I've got the tools, and I can give you the direction, and if you want to do it, we can do it. And the people sign on, and they, and they set to work. And then opposition comes, and guess what? They meet opposition, and they just keep working. And they actually complete the walls in an unbelievably short time. They've been living in the open, unprotected, for more than 90 years. They rebuild the wall and set new gates in 52 days. What an amazing, inspiring story of recovery. Now, can you imagine? I know what, what they said to each other when it was over. Because it's the kind of thing that we addicts in recovery say to each other all the time. Why did it take us so long to do that, to get started? Why did we delay? Why did we live? Why all those years living that way? Now we're within the safety of this new city, and it's all over. We got a new beginning. This is, why did I wait so long? That's the great regret of every addict in recovery. <laughs> Eventually, you know, we say it's God's time. He knew when. Even today, for me, I, 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 I I hate the fact that I spent my kid's childhood doing what I was doing. Well, why? And, and, and also, how? How did we live that way that long? And you know how we did? Denial. Absolutely. We told ourselves stories. You know, it's not that bad. The temple's here. Hey, I was a Christian all those years. I went to church. I just didn't want to think about the fact that the wall was down and the gates had been burned with fire. Let's not pay attention to the enemies running in and out of my life and what they're taking every day. I got my family. We're eating. Settle day after day after day for a small life using denial. That's what we're going to talk about today. And I want to be clear when I get started here, by the way. Uh, my aim today is not uh, to get you uh, to defeat denial. That is an unrealistic goal. Uh, denial is an inevitable, uh, unavoidable part of Christian life, even a necessary part of, Christ uh, uh, of human life. Uh, all I, my goal today is, is to help us see denial, and recognize that it's real. That's the only goal. Now, if you're, you might be surprised for me to, to hear me say that denial is, is even necessary, even good. But here's what I mean. God, as we know, is omniscient 
and omnipresent. God sees and registers everything that's going on. He knows it all. Jesus said, hey, he knows how many hairs there are in your head. And he knows how the count changed in the shower this morning. He knows. There, there isn't a bird that falls from the sky that he doesn't register. When it comes to data, God's processing and storage capacities are unlimited. Now, we're made in his image, but those are not attributes we share. In fact, all of us, at all, even right now, we are uh, receiving streams of data through all our senses, far more than we can possibly uh, deal with. And the only way we can function is to filter those, right? In fact, if you can't filter, you'll find yourself perhaps on the autism scale, right? Or maybe suffering from ADHD, highly distractible, can't stay on a task because I'm having a filtering problem. An inability to filter is connected with PTSD, even with schizophrenia. We have to filter. We can't process everything. So how does this happen? Well, consciously or unconsciously, we begin, we assign value to the data that's coming in. And we decide, consciously or unconsciously, that some things are important and some things aren't. And then magically we see what's important and we don't see what isn't. And we function. Now, it's, it's because we, God gave us this capacity that it's possible for us to fall in love. <laughs> um, you, you may, I hope you have experienced this. You know, you're, you're just functioning in a world of ordinary people, and then suddenly you meet this person. And, um, you know, the uh, infatuation uh, protocol uh, starts. And it's amazing. Everything about this person is perfect. It's wonderful. You might, you might, often the peripheral vision, you might see something that might be slightly, but you, you, it's unimportant, right? You might even, in my experience, you might even imagine, you know, it's amazing now, you have so much in common with this person. You're practically cosmic twins. It's amazing, <laughs> right? Now, this happened, you know, to Allie and I when we met. If you know Allie and me, you know that we're a little different, right? <laughs> so, you know, when we met, you know, I was a kid who grew up in church. Um, you know, here comes Allie. She's 10 years older than me. She's a, a new Christian. She's been stoned for 10 years as a hippie. Uh, she's, she's, she's just moved from a commune where they were raising marijuana by the acre, right? When we met, it's, we had this deep recognition. And, and I found my other half. It was phenomenal. Now, people who knew us both, loved us both, most of them were kind of mystified by this. Not everybody. I had one old girlfriend who I had declined to marry, who when she heard I was going to ask Allie out, took me aside and said, are you sure you want to do this? She said, because if you go out with her, you're going to marry her. She's the only one who said that. Most of our other friends, they were kind, but this is the reaction we got when they heard that you know, she and I were together and we're going to get married. It was kind of like, 
No. <laughs> wow. Didn't see that coming. You know? <laughs> okay. So you meet this person who's your cosmic twin, and the filter is is fully functional. But then, you know, you move out of the pink cloud, and the infatuation fades, and suddenly you begin to notice things that you hadn't noticed before. And then this person fails you. One way or another, they fail you. And now you have to decide what that means. And what you decide will determine to a very great degree what your marriage is going to be like. It will color and even create your experience. Well, thank God for this filtering ability. I mean, let me ask you, what would you rather be married to? A person who sees all your flaws or somebody who believes that you're the greatest person ever? Right? Now, we have some control over this. Paul says this in his great hymn to love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He's talking about this filter and he says, you know, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love does. It picks that filter, right? Uh, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, this is important not just in, in, uh, in marriage, but in, uh, in church or within the community. He says this in... Uh, in, uh, where am I? Ephesians chapter 4. He says, uh, starting in verse 1, he says, I as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to walk worthy of the call you've received. We're walking again. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with or forbearing one another in love. That Greek word that is translated forbearing uh, means... Uh, Tolerating one another, putting up with one another in love. Do you know that we're called to put up with each other? We're called to make a decision about what we're going to focus on, how we're going to interpret what people do. And there come times in, in all of our lives when we kind of we have to reevaluate the filter and then make a choice of what we're gonna what we're gonna believe. I'll tell you what, Allie came to a crossroads 16 years ago when she found out what I'd been up to for 20 years. And, and let's make very clear, she, she could have left me. And God would still have blessed her. She had every reason to leave me. And, and God, in His graciousness, would have made it work out for the good of both of us, because that's God. She could have decided to adopt the filter that said, Nate can never be trusted. He's not trustworthy. He's a liar and he'll always be a liar. He's incapable of love. She could have picked that filter, but she didn't. She picked a different one. I was still rough. We had a rough few years getting our feet back under us again. But the fact that she has chosen to believe the best of me has made it possible for us still to be married. This can govern our relationships, our civil relationships. All of us tend to um, believe what we want to be true, and we, we pay attention, naturally we pay attention, to those who agree with us. 
and the media helps us in this. They enable this. Facebook, by the way, uh, it'll ask you a lot of questions on Facebook of what you like and what you've done and what you've read and all that kind of stuff. And then it will deliver to you in your news feed. It's going to try and anticipate what you want to see and screen out what you probably won't want to see. And it's amazing, the longer you're on Facebook, the more everything you see just reinforces what you believe. <laughs> of course! <laughs> Google does the same thing. They, they keep a profile on you. Everything you've searched for, everything you've read, they build a profile. And so when I type in a search, let's say on a political topic or a civil topic, the search results that I get will be entirely different from the results that will be delivered to somebody who holds the opposite political views. And magically, I find on the internet everything that I agree with. It supports what I believe, right? Now, if I am unaware that that filter is present, if I refuse to believe that, it, if, I, if I refuse to acknowledge that I'm looking through corrective lenses that I can change and that other people have different lenses, if I, then I can start to believe that everything I see is objectively true. And I'll tell you what, anybody who doesn't believe with what I, doesn't jive with what I see is suddenly an idiot and certainly not a Christian. I think comedians are the uh, prophets of the modern age. Uh, they kind of point out our stupidity. I ran across this, this article a little while ago in the satirical newspaper, The Onion. Uh, <laughs> Here's an article under the headline, Conservative Acquaintance Annoyingly Not Racist. Dateline, Brooklyn, New York. Acknowledging that the man's right-wing views are more nuanced than one might expect, 36-year-old liberal Diana Hardwick confided to reporters Tuesday that her conservative acquaintance, Brady Daniels, is quite frustratingly not racist. We got talking about immigration, and I really wanted to under, him to undermine his arguments for stricter, stricter border controls by saying something disparaging about Latinos. But apparently, his opinions are based entirely on national security issues instead of race, which is super irritating. <laughs> Hardwick said of Daniels, who reportedly describes himself as a strong conservative on fiscal issues, but annoyingly exhibits no racial bias. She says, it would be so much easier if I could just write him off as a bigot, but as far as I can tell, he harbors no resentment or disdain toward people of color. For God's sake, we argued every issue from states' rights to income disparity, but nope, he didn't say anything even tacitly racist, not once. And then here's the final sentence, which just cracked me up because it shows how persistent denial is. Hardwick later concluded that her acquaintance's opposition to most of President Obama's policies meant that he was probably close enough to count as a racist. <laughs> All right, so we can do that. Conservatives do it to liberals, liberals do it to conservatives. Republicans do it to Democrats and vice versa. And Christians all across the theological spectrum do it to each other all the time. Now, um, so that is uh, selective attention, cognitive bias. It has its use, it has its dangers. What we've talked about so far is how we see those around us. Now let's turn to how we see ourselves because it's when we look at ourselves that this ability to filter 
to pay selective attention, to see some things and ignore others, becomes most sinister. This is where, this is denial in its most toxic form. Uh, Jeremiah said it this way, <laughs> he said, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can know it? We have this ability to lie to ourselves that's just phenomenal. And that keeps us living year after year after year in an unsafe place, damaging ourselves and others, oblivious to the fact that the walls are down and the gates have been burned with fire. I want to give you, uh, 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 we, we do this in multiple ways. I want to give you 10 different ways, and I'm sure there are more, 10 ways in which uh, we operate in denial, 10 denial strategies. If you're looking for, uh, if you want to kind of mix it up in your denial, uh, adopt a new strategy, I'll give you some hints on how to do it. I've used all of these, and I'm sure before the day is over, we'll use a few of them. Okay, denial strategy number one, minimizing. It's easy for me just to say, you know, the problem's not that bad. I don't know what everybody's making such a big deal about. It's really nothing. I didn't drink that much. Uh, I did it once. I just did it once. It's over. Don't go crazy. I'll minimize what the consequences are. And uh, it's amazing. We, we addicts have really great forgetters, right? So 48 hours, uh, 48 hours later, the hangover wasn't that bad. And we, 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 and, and you minimize, the way to minimize is just don't keep very good books, don't keep track. For Pete's sake, don't chart. Don't keep track of anything. Don't keep track of what you eat, what you weigh, what you drink, what you spend. Don't track at anything. Yeah, if you want to defeat minimizing, start keeping records. You, when I uh, was early in recovery, I'm still trying to accept the fact, because I can't even begin recovery until I accept the fact that my life is completely out of control. I am powerless over lust, and it has made my life unmanageable. I'm still negotiating when I'm coming in the door. I, I do what most addicts do when they first come in the door. You know, I got a bit of a problem. I got a little bit of a problem. And my sponsor knows I've got a far bigger problem than I know. So one strategy he employed was he said, uh, he asked me if I, could, if I could run a spreadsheet, if I could build a spreadsheet that I know how to do Excel. I said, yeah. He said, uh, you know, before we meet next time, why don't you build a spreadsheet and see if you can figure out uh, how much money you have spent on your addiction. See if you can reconstruct it. So, I mean, I did. I went back and I, there was a lot of years there. And I, a lot of them were a fog, but as I started to think and, and kind of extrapolate and estimate, and I got to a bottom line. I was shocked. As far as I can figure, I spent $300,000 on pornography and prostitutes. That's a huge number. And you know, I never, I never registered it. I never kept track of that. And I always told myself, you know, it's, it's bad, but it's not that bad. It just wasn't counting. Okay, strategy number one, minimizing. 
So we can minimize well, what we're doing. We can minimize its uh, uh, effect on other people. I'm not really hurting anybody else. No. I'm learning still that uh, what, I, what I did all those years affected other people, not the least among my own kids. Uh, number two, strategy number two, comparison. This is a very valuable uh, strategy, very helpful. Um, uh, the best way for me to convince myself that I don't have a problem is to find somebody else who has this, a similar problem but is much worse than me. Right? So who is an addict? An addict is somebody who's worse than me. Right? Uh, and you can always find somebody who uh, is worse. I loved, you know, I told myself, look, at least I never got emotionally involved with anybody. I might have a problem if that were the, if that, if I'd gone there. So this is, uh, this is the strategy that Jesus skewered so beautifully when he told that story of the, the Pharisee who goes into the temple. He says, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. I've never done any of that stuff. Or even like this tax collector. It's a great strategy for denial, comparison. Number, third, number three, uh, you can create a diversion. If um, attention starts to um, focus on your behavior, whatever it is, a great way to kind of stop that process so you don't have to face what's going on is just start a different argument. Blow something up. Get, just get something else going. Right? This is the strategy that the woman at the well employed. Right? Jesus shows up. It's in the middle of the day, sitting at the well, and this Samaritan woman comes, and she's all by herself. It's the middle of the day. That's not how women go to get water. First of all, you don't go in the middle of the day because it's hot. You come early, and... In the same way that women go to the bathroom, they go to the well together, right? There's always a group. But this woman is coming when nobody else is around. She's coming in the middle of the day. She's coming alone. And it turns out there's pretty much a reason. She's slept with everybody in town, basically, and the women all hate her guts. But there's no way she's going to let that subject come up. She avoids it. It's Jesus who finally says it. Instead, she starts a diversion. I mean, as soon as they get going in conversation, she goes, she starts that old religious argument. So, <laughs> you people say we have to go to Jerusalem to worship, and we worship. And Jesus, that's, okay, that's classic diversion. I'll tell you what, addicts love to talk politics. Or we'll talk anything. We'll talk your ear off. Especially if the conversation is going to come anywhere near what we're doing. Love to talk theology. It's a great diversion. We'll go Bible studies, man. Good thing to do. Number four, kind of related to that, is distraction. And I, here I'm pretty much just trying to distract myself rather than other people. I just don't want to think about it. I've got to think about something else. You know, during my years of active addiction, um, I, I always listened to the radio in the car. The minute I got in the car, I mean, the radio was on. For years, I listened, uh, to, I listened to a lot of talk radio. Might be uh, political talk radio, you know? Tuning in, first thing in the morning, get my assignment for the day. Who am I going to be angry at? What am I going to be afraid of? You know, just rev me up, and then I'll listen. I'm on the hook all day long. 
And then for a while it was sports talk, 24-hour sports talk. So I'll obsess about trades and salary caps and I'm making strategy for the next season. On a team, I, I, I have no influence at all. But it's a great distraction. And one of the signs to me that I was making progress in recovery was it got to the point where the radio was an annoyance. I wanted to shut it off because I wanted to be able to sit in the car and kind of be there with me and with God and with what was going on. It's a sign that something has shifted. Strategy number five, uh, blaming. This is a kind of a cool one. In a way, you're kind of admitting that you have a problem, but you skate right away because it's really not your problem. Uh, it's nothing you can do about it because it's somebody else's fault, right? You know, I have a problem because I'm married to her or him. I have a problem because of my parent. Or if you had my boss, you'd be doing what I'm doing, right? It's not me. It's them. Somebody else shifting responsibility. It's my family history. That's another, you know, we can do that because you can't change family history and now I'm kind of locked in and don't judge me. And by the way, it's not that bad and I'm blaming. And I, uh, one of the most powerful sentences I heard early in recovery and I wound up hearing it several times. You know, they, you, know you can't begin until you take responsibility. I heard a guy say, if it's not my problem, there's no solution. Not my problem. There's no. I got to take ownership. All right. So uh, we got to escape that one. Now, okay. Number uh, six. We are going to make it. Number six. Uh, working. It's a good distraction. Work is honorable. It's good. Uh, but I have found that this is very valuable. Uh, kind of a a, a a a tool in denial. You know what? If I just can't face, I don't want to deal with what my problem is, I'll just put my head down and work. I'll just work. I'll achieve, and if I'll do that, I'll probably succeed, and, they'll, and there's quite likely there's going to be some monetary benefit, which can distract me from everything I'm doing and justify everything I'm doing. Uh, our good friend James, he, uh, he nails this one uh, when he says, uh, he says, for you say, oh, I'm sorry, no, no, this isn't James. This is what God says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation. You know, that church that was neither hot or cold? He says this, for you say, I am rich and I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Work my way right into denial. And I think I'm a success and I'm a colossal failure and in deep trouble. Okay, another strategy, great strategy for denial is legalism. If I can't succeed in one area of my life, if I'm forever being defeated there, it's just a mess. Here's a great strategy. Pick another area that I can succeed in, where I can keep it between the lines. Make that all important. Work hard and preach that. Try to get judge everybody who doesn't succeed over here. I'll get highly legalistic in the area where I can succeed. Jesus busted the Pharisees on this one. 
You know, when I, I, you know, I did this, by the way. In my years of active addiction, I never swore. Those of you who know me now may find that hard to believe, but I never, <laughs> ever swore. I was doing obscene things, but I never uttered an obscene word. And on those rare occasions when Allie would get overwhelmed and she'd let something fly, I would turn on her with just offended astonishment. How could you speak that way? You know. I also, if a cashier gave me too much change, I'd, I'd give the money back, thereby convincing myself that I'm an honest person. The Ayers call this cash register honesty. Yes, I'm honest. I gave the change back. It's a legalistic solution that avoids the real issue. So Jesus busted the Pharisees on this one. He said, woe to you Pharisees, you pay tithe on mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Okay, we're on number eight. Number eight, strategy for denial, fantasy. If the present is ugly and out of control, I could just escape into a magical, imagined future. Uh, for the years of my active addiction, I, 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 I harbored this belief that money would solve everything. And Allie got tired of it. I always had at least $3 million ideas working. Right? Maybe way more than that, she says. Okay. Um, it, I mean, they're, they're just comical. And not that I ever really did much with any of them, because I have the ability to get a sense of accomplishment by having imagined doing something. <laughs> <laughs> and so I could just kind of disregard what's going on now as irrelevant because success is right around the corner. It's coming, and everything is going to be golden. This is where James steps in and says in verse 4, starting in verse 13, he says, Come now, those of you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Strategy number nine, false repentance. I found that, um, that I could quiet my conscience with, um, with a quick and very shallow and very private and completely intellectual repentance. coming out of some, if I'd crossed a line that I said I was never going to cross, and that, that's what happens in addiction. Addiction is always progressive. So, you know, we always have a list of not yets, right? I haven't done that yet. I haven't done that yet. So, it's crossing a line, doing something I'd never done before, coming out and going, oh, boy, that was the wake-up call. I'm done now. I'm going to repent now. God, I'm so sorry. I'm, I've, I've learned. This is it. I'm done. A good way to seal it would be to go to the altar. I wish, kind of, sometimes wish we had altar calls in this church. Can't do that. But I, what, in the churches we were going to then, most of them, you could go to the front, right? Nobody's going to bug you. You just get quietly before God, repent, and now 
It's done. Don't talk to me about it. I don't have to tell anybody. Nothing has to change. It's over. That was yesterday. It's so yesterday. I have repented. It's done. Now I don't have to look at it. Form of denial. Number 10. And this is the kicker. This is the one. The, when all else fails, absolute denial. <laughs> Just stonewall. No, sir. Not me. Done. And, and when pushed into a corner, we, we alcoholics will do that. Or, 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 I'm not calling myself an alcoholic. We addicts would do that. I was thinking of an alcoholic friend of mine who'd kind of been negotiating with recovery for years and, you know, and it just it got to a mess. And I love this guy. We're great friends to this day. But he was in a really bad way. And we finally did something we seldom do. We did an intervention. And I got a bunch of us together. And he showed up. And it was pretty clear he was drunk. But he swore he hadn't had a drink in months, right? Stunt, not me. No, nothing, nothing. Well, you're not feeling well. Yeah, I'm just not feeling well. All right, we'll take it. So we struck a deal. We're down to the emergency room, get you checked out, get some blood drawn, and uh, find out what's wrong. We'll get you treated. If there's alcohol in your system, you'll go straight to treatment. Oh, yeah, sure, come on. Man, he's, he's playing it right to the wall the whole way. We get down, they draw the blood, we're sitting around, he's talking, right? When the results come back, and his blood alcohol level is twice the legal limit, he looks like astonished, like flabbergasted. It's like, you know, yes, the, the you know, the immaculate intoxication. <laughs> you know, wow. And, and here's the key. He had... To, to, to stonewall effectively, you have to convince yourself first. If, you, if you're really going to lie convincing to somebody, you've got you to lie to yourself first. And we're going to close with our, going back to our good friend James, who says this, 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he doubles back. But if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. Well, uh, let us go from this place asking God to uh, allow us to see our own strategies of denial. Are we living unnecessarily in a dangerous and unsafe place? Are we losing a life we will one day regret if we don't finally face the truth? We're going to need the help of the Spirit to see it. And let's pray as David prayed. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my secret thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.